Issues of climate change need to be addressed, but not at the expense of Africans. It is unfair to put restrictions on energy choices of African countries who are continuously trapped in a state of poverty, inequality, underdevelopment, and many other socioeconomic challenges that you may think of. Hello and welcome to the Africa Dialogues. I'm your host, Laura Chikonya, and here we explore the big stories and trends transforming the continent today, told by decision makers, thinkers, and doers. Today's guest is Princess Mtombeni, former advisor to the South African government, nuclear tech advocate, and communications specialist. Princess is a regular at high-profile global events, such as UN climate change conferences, various international atomic energy agency working formats, the Japan Atomic Industrial Forum Conference, and International Atom Expo. She is also the founder of the NGO Africa for Nuclear. Princess and I planned our call during what many are calling the make or break moment of South Africa's energy crisis. 2022 saw 205 days of blackouts, some of which lasted up to 12 hours. As the country's leadership considers declaring a national state of disaster, record power cuts continue to cripple the economy. During our discussion, Princess and I spoke about the causes behind how we found ourselves here, possible solutions, as well as Africa's energy independence and sovereignty. Here's our conversation. It's really good to see you. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Laura. It's good to see you too. So I think it would probably make sense to start today's conversation off with a question that I think is really on everyone's mind. I'm thinking about it a lot, and I think that it's something that has been on the news and has just been quite worrying in general, and that's the current energy situation in South Africa. Can you give us an overview, especially for those who aren't in the loop of what's happening right now, about the load shedding situation, electricity outages, why is this happening, and what are your thoughts and concerns on the situation in general? Laura, South Africans have enjoyed power cuts for years, since um, 2018, but 2022 was the worst on record, with 205 days of rolling blackouts. And we are told this is mainly due to aging coal-fired power plants, which continuously break down and um, state-owned power utility, ESCOM, is struggling to find money to buy diesel for emergency generators. So far this year, there has been load shedding every day. By the way, we call power cuts load shedding here in South Africa. So we have been experiencing that every day. The situation worsened again a couple of weeks ago when ESCOM announced that it would implement more power cuts because of breakdowns at 11 coal-fired generating uh, units. Since last year, load shedding has been escalated to level six stage six, which entails removing 6,000 megawatt worth of power from the grid in order to rebalance uh, demand and supply. This can result in outages lasting over four hours at a time and totaling 12 hours a day for households and uh, businesses. So that's how bad the situation is here. And I feel sorry for small businesses who do not have other alternatives such as diesel generators, so you can imagine what that is doing to them. Some of them have had to shut down their businesses. 
Right. And you mentioned three terms, which I think the average Russian listener wouldn't necessarily be familiar with. The first one being ESCOM, which is the state energy company. There were some changes in the structure of the company recently. Could you just say a couple of words about that as well? Um, yes, ESCOM is our state-owned utility, power utility. There's been some changes in such that they have hired a new board um, last year uh, to take over and, and look into issues of uh, management a, a, as a whole. And also, we have recently heard that the CEO of ESCOM, uh, Mr. Andre Dereta, has resigned and his last day is on the 30th of March. So those are changes that have been made, and uh, we are not sure if it's going to yield results because, as I have mentioned earlier on, the situation um, really has been caused by old power plants that are continuously breaking down. And another thing that you mentioned was level six load shedding. So again, for listeners who, who don't really know what that means, can you explain what the different levels mean and what they imply for your average household and user of electricity? We have uh, from stage one to up to, we have experienced stage one up to stage six. I mean, uh, stage one obviously is um, removing 1000 megawatt worth of power from the grid. Um, and then that means uh, we are going to experience at least one hour uh, without electricity at a time. Then when we are on stage six, it means we are without a power for over four hours at a time and totaling to 12 hours a day. So that's basically what it means. And the third term that I wanted to run over before we move forward was just the term of load shedding. So you said that this is something quite unique to South Africa. Am I right that the difference between load shedding and then just emergency switching off of energy is that load shedding is something planned and it's ESCOM's way of making sure that at least there's some energy reaching households in a safe way that won't lead to accidents, right? Or some kind of issues at the power plants. You are 100% correct. Load shedding is where the load or the electricity uh, capacity is shared among different uh, areas. Mm -hmm. And um, so just looking at the, the South African context, if we do a bit of a zoom out, the general situation in Africa is it's pretty difficult as well. How do you think the South African case is different? And can you just share kind of your view of why South Africa has found itself in this situation? And is it any better than the rest of Africa? Or is it the continental challenge that needs to be solved in all African countries? I would say that it's a continental challenge. Energy security remains a daunting challenge for the African continent. And according to the African Development Bank report, over 640 million people do not have access to electricity here in South Africa, corresponding to an electricity access rate of um, for African countries at just over 40%, which is the lowest in the world. Um, studies also estimate that 792 million people are forced to resort to biomass, such as firewood, candles, paraffin, um, charcoal, and even cow dung. And those options are economically inefficient and environmentally devastating. Now, to really respond to your question about um, 
whether it's a South African challenge or South Africa is better. And I would say that in terms of South Africa, with regards to access to electricity, South Africa is better because, I mean, about 90% of people in South Africa are electrified. But if you go to other countries, such as maybe uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, you find that only 26% of uh, people are electrified. And then in when you move to the north, like Egypt, Morocco, it's also uh, better there because 100% of people are electrified in Egypt, in Tunisia, you know. Uh, so yeah, that's basically what it is. I think this leads one to question some pressure that's being put on Africa right now, because as you know, as we know, the world's most developed countries are pursuing more sustainable ecological and energy practices. And expectations are really high from Africa to pursue renewables, avoid mistakes made by other countries and just leapfrog outdated methods and technology. And as you said, you know, only 40% of the continent has access to energy today. And the issue is so challenging that some experts call it the continent's number one problem. So my question, do you think it's fair to expect clean energy from a continent that's struggling to provide its own energy security at all? Especially considering that the continent contributes less than 5% of global CO2 emissions. Laura, the world is talking net zero carbon emissions by 2050, which is a great thing. Whether or not it's achievable is a question for another day. Um, but what is concerning is that many developed nations have placed the burden of addressing pollution challenges to African states. And these nations are persuading our leaders to phase out fossil fuels, especially coal in our countries. And yet they have not done so in their own countries. What is even worse is them dictating on the type of renewable energy sources that we should implement. And they do so through funding terms and conditions. And I'm saying this in inverted commas. And the usually recommended energy sources are wind and solar. Don't get me wrong, I have absolutely no problem with wind and solar. However, these technologies alone will not solve Africa's problem of energy poverty and lack of infrastructure development. And while I'm also of the view that issues of climate change need to be to be addressed, but not at the expense of poor Africans, it is unfair and it is evil to put restrictions on energy choices of African countries who are continuously trapped in a state of poverty, inequality, underdevelopment, and many other socioeconomic challenges that you may think of. I think that you've brought up a very important point of how sensitive the issue is to Africans and to the continent's development in general, about how imposing certain agendas before the situation is ripe can bring more harm than good. And let's just imagine for a second that Africa was able to solve its energy problem and the numbers went from 40% having access to electricity to something similar to 90 or let's dream a little bit and say 100 even. How do you think that will affect Africa's geopolitical independence? I'd love to hear your thoughts on the link between energy security and political independence. Um, Laura, I think I'm going to be very brief on this one because what I'm, I'm about to say is something that has been said uh, for many people and has been proven beyond the other stages. 
access to energy can unlock sustainable economic growth. It can also improve human health and well-being. So beyond uh, direct economic and social benefits, energy security will raise human security and build resilience in states where people are able to get more confident and unattractive to bullies. And lastly, we will definitely get a seat on the table of the big guys. One of the potential solutions that there's a lot of talk about right now in order for Africa to achieve this energy security that it's aiming for is the use of nuclear energy. We already had uh, an episode of the podcast with Ryan Collier, head of Rosatom in Central and Southern Africa, who kind of shared his vision of how nuclear can really help Africa address this very critical issue for its development. And I wanted to speak to you, Princey, because of your activities promoting the role, the beneficial role that nuclear energy can play in solving this issue of the overall perception of nuclear energy in Africa. And as we know, in general, around the world, the perception is complicated. But what do you think can be done to balance out views, provide more information and change perspective? And why do you think that's important? Uh, Laura, this, the perception of nuclear in Africa is that it's a technology that is expensive, dangerous, and African states don't have the skills to handle it. Obviously, this is more. Uh, this mostly comes from lack of knowledge. That's where effective communication now comes in, because for a very long time, the nuclear industry has focused more on improving the technology and the safety aspect of it and neglected communication. However, that has changed recently, as I see so many nuclear advocates globally coming out to be part of these energy debates and basically claiming their space in the energy sector. And so for me, Effective communication really means that all nuclear organizations and technology vendors allocating more resources to communication strategies, including being unapologetic about supporting nuclear advocates, because we are seeing our industry, you know, shying away from being loud about supporting advocacy campaigns. And I, really, there's nothing wrong with doing that. We are the only industry that does not reveal who we fund if we are nuclear organizations. So that needs to change. And, and I believe that it would be able to to at least um, you know, show people that um, we are transparency about um, our dealings. And can you give an idea of what the past, let's say, 10 years have looked like for South Africa in terms of its nuclear journey? Can you give those who don't really know the story a bit of background about where South Africa is right now in terms of nuclear? and what the past 10 to 15 years have looked like to reach this current point? Um, currently, South Africa is the only African country with a commercial nuclear power plant. We have two reactors at Kubach Nuclear Power Station in Cape Town, which provides about 5% of electricity or total electricity in South Africa. In the past 10 years, what has happened in 2016 or even before that, we saw government being serious about going nuclear and even starting with a 
procurement process um, in terms of reaching out to different vendor technologies, inviting them to pitch and on, and all that. I mean, going past the request for information stage. Um, so that happened, but uh, unfortunately, it did not live to see the day because the anti-nuclear lobby groups here in South Africa, they took the government to court and um, really on the basis that nuclear is expensive and the right processes were not followed in terms of procurement um, processes. And then the court ruled that the government needs to start from scratch and prove that they followed the right processes then until then well um it, it didn't happen and then uh, what happened for the past 3 or 5 years we saw again government releasing a request for information for 2500 megawatts of nuclear capacity and um, before then they released what is called Integrated Resource Plan in 2019. So it's IRP 2019 in short, which actually included all the technologies, including nuclear. But um, now, after the request for information, then the minister went to the regulator, the energy regulator here in South Africa, seeking concurrence to proceed with the procurement of nuclear. Then, uh, because that is the next step that the government uh, needs to follow before they can go ahead and start with the procurement processes, what happened is that the regulator released the concurrence, we call it the, the Section 34 determination uh, for minister to procure, uh, but it came with conditions. And one of the conditions was that uh, government has to prove that the funds um, to build nuclear I mean, currently, ESCOM is the one that is the owner of nuclear power plants or the, any energy power plant. So they need to prove that ESCOM can really procure nuclear. <laughs> and then another condition was obviously related to issues of nuclear waste and, uh, you know, the budget for rehabilitation stage. Yeah, so that, that's what happened so far. We are hoping uh, that um, they will review the, R uh, the IRP 2019 because it's due to review and uh, we hope that the review will not kick nuclear out of the IRP. And have I understood correctly that the central pillar of South Africa's energy balance right now is coal? Yes, um, most of it, uh, most of our electricity comes from coal. And so the underlining reason why these blackouts are happening is because the coal plants are not functioning the way they should not being repaired enough, not being used properly, the capacity is not large enough, and that just leaves the whole country without proper access to electricity. Um, Laura, really, I can tell you that coal plants or coal stations have been neglected. ESCOM is, in, is neglecting the baseload uh, power plant because there has been this obsession uh, you know, around climate change and just energy transition that has to only include renewables, wind and solar to be specific. And now that that is happening, people are focusing on this jet that only sidelines the baseload technologies. And eventually we are stuck with load shedding because the coal power plants have been neglected and not maintained properly. And now they are breaking down. So Princey, 
let's continue by touching upon energy security in Africa. And as you already mentioned, the numbers, unfortunately, are far from encouraging. And although the continent has made progress over the past decade, much work still needs to be done. Why do you think the continent is lagging so far behind in terms of access to energy? Um, I would say, Laura, it is due to many challenges. But um, for the purpose of this interview, I will mention only three. And the first one being funding for energy projects. Political and credit risk remain critical factors hindering potential investors from investing in energy sector in Africa. And I think that to alleviate this challenge, Africa would need to develop new and innovative funding solutions and approaches that would benefit the continent uh, landscape. If they are successful in that, these efforts will expedite direct foreign investment by renewing investor confidence. Then the second one is the challenge um, which could be linked to lack of technology advancements in terms of harnessing our own mineral resources. In some countries, um, the resources are there, but have not advanced technologically for them to be fully utilized. And the third one, which is an obvious one, political instabilities, which also lead to underdevelopment of electricity infrastructure. For example, the Inga Dam could potentially power at least a quarter of Africa if developed fully. However, political instability in the Democratic Republic of Congo has made it difficult for this project to advance. You mentioned political instability as one of the factors that's holding Africa back in terms of its uh, energy development. When we talk about nuclear energy, for example, these political risks seem more daunting for obvious reasons. What are African leaders doing to ensure the safety of nuclear energy programs and infrastructure in their countries to raise confidence and allow for those projects to happen? While many people may be worried about weapons proliferation and the security of nuclear facilities in developing nations, um, you know, generally, um, Countries, you know, African countries have made great progress on non-proliferation with all but two countries ratifying or acceding to the non-proliferation treaty. Over half of the countries um, have also ratified the additional protocols which allow the International Atomic Energy Agency to verify that those states are complying with their comprehensive safeguards agreements. Almost all countries have signed the African Nuclear Weapon Free Zone Treaty, famously known as Pelindaba Treaty, and a majority have ratified, which prohibits all activities related to nuclear weapons development, transportation, and use. I recently saw comments from your Minister of Energy about how South Africa has learned some really interesting lessons recently based on the energy situation around the world right now, that the energy balance needs to be comprised of many different types of energy sources. So do you feel like 
what you're doing is working and that the general thought process and philosophy of the government is changing and it's opening some new doors. What is your general sentiment, um, considering that you, Princey, are very invested in pushing for the situation to become better? Thank you, Laura. I will take the credit on behalf of all <laughs> nuclear advocates here in South Africa because I'm not alone. There are people who are also pushing, and not only nuclear advocates, but people in the energy space who are pushing for a balanced energy mix. And people understand that that balanced energy mix, balanced energy mix needs to have a baseload electricity source uh, because really, you you can't stabilize the grid with uh, intermittent power sources such as wind and solar. So there are a lot of people who are doing good work in terms of advocating for baseload sources such as nuclear, and some are advocating for coal as well. So yeah, we are seeing a shift from our government in terms of they now are starting to acknowledge that nuclear has a role to play in um, energy mix. And also, they really, they are starting to invite different people in these energy discussions, as opposed to before, where only few faces you would see being interviewed on TV and being part of the panel when maybe an event is organized and those people who are really pushing for um, renewables, which is wind and solar. But now the conversations are diverse and I'm, I'm happy to see that. So there's a more balanced approach that uh, that's that's really good news. Because Russia essentially is, it really is an energy giant. And again, just referring back to my conversation with Ryan Collier, obviously nuclear energy is something that Russia does have to offer the world. Last year, the IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi said that at present, the main supplier of commercial nuclear technologies to the world market is Russia. I would love to hear your opinion as an expert, but also as an African, on what the perception of Russian nuclear technology is on the continent. Laura, it is without a doubt that Russians... Uh, you know, are dominant players in global supply chains of nuclear reactor technologies. In terms of perception, from relations point of view, as far as the Russian technology is concerned, there is positive response because of the historical relations. Russia is warm received. I'm saying that in inverted commas again, because there is no history of Russia invading or colonizing African countries. Also, Russian technology has a reference and African countries are able to relate or verify information on nuclear power plants where Russia has built outside Russian territory. Because Russia takes nuclear communication very serious, um, they invested a lot in nuclear education, especially for newcomer countries. Then um, from a technical point of view, Africans trust Russia because in countries where they have installed nuclear power reactors, there are no issues of the quality and the resilience of those nuclear power plants. Additionally, Russians' approach is quite unique for their offer in, in Africa in two ways. And the first one is they offer education from grassroots level all the way up to back end of nuclear power program, including the rehabilitation stage. 
They, uh, the second one is that they are willing to invest in startups of nuclear facilities with their offer for centers for new, uh, nuclear science and technology uh, in such a way that they are spread around all five African regions, um, for example, in Zambia, in Rwanda, Uganda, and, and, and others. Um, so that's how Russian um, approach is understood um, also they respect nations and treat Africans as partners instead of their subordinates. They open up an opportunity to talk on equal footing. However, Laura, there is a disadvantage and, uh, and it's that uh, there are those African countries whom their leaders and citizens are made to see Russians as using this nuclear technology to control Africa. So really it will take another massive, you know, <laughs> campaign or communication campaign to deal with that perception. You said something really interesting to me um, about equal footing and Russia never having invaded or infringed on Africans' rights in the way that uh, many, unfortunately, other countries have over the course of history. This is something which is being quite actively discussed in, in Russia right now within the context of our strategy of working with Africa. And this is a question that's not entirely related to energy. So excuse me for uh, departing from our agenda slightly, but do you feel that Russia's historical alliance with Africa and Russia having supported Africa, especially South Africa, the ANC during the years of the struggle during apartheid, do you think that it actually affects business decisions in Africa today? Or is it just a general mutual respect? What do you feel like? How does that actually translate into business practice right now? I wouldn't say it actually influenced the business decisions, but I would say that um, South Africa understands that in the current situation which is happening, they really don't have to take a side or to choose a side. They need to really step back and let things or let issues be sorted out by those who have power to do so. And they don't want to get involved in those politics where now other countries are forced to side with certain countries. And yeah, so it, it does affect that uh, in saying that now, because ANC understands where they come from with Russia, and therefore, if they cannot support Russia, they would rather step back and do not choose any side uh, among the two sides that we are told to choose. So let's pivot back to, to energy and talk about something that you already slightly mentioned before, which is the auxiliary and additional benefits of what nuclear can provide. There's much talk about the role of new technology in Africa's economic leap forward. And since nuclear energy spans far wider than just energy supply, what auxiliary atomic technologies are most needed in Africa today? And why them specifically? I'm happy about this question because uh, this is another issue that is close to my heart. I believe that another technology that as Africans we should seriously consider exploring is nuclear medicine. So far in Africa, only Egypt and South Africa have their own means of production of radioisotopes and commercialization of radiopharmaceuticals. Majority of other countries import their radiopharmaceuticals mainly from Europe. 
So there is inadequacy of nuclear medicine in Africa. And in some countries, patients have to travel considerable distances, Laura, to access this care. And therefore, I'd like to see efforts being made by governments to increase the number of these facilities across the continent in their future, because this would enable citizens to benefit more from this very important diagnostic and therapeutic modality of care. It sounds to me like this conversation about energy security is actually a lot wider. And it's about Africa becoming independent, about Africa being able to power its economic development, literally. And I think that what you just said about medicine, it's about African solutions to African problems, which I think is a, a phrase which is becoming more popular and gaining more meaning as Africa really does move forward and open doors to, for example, trade amongst African countries, thanks to the African Free Continental Trade Agreement, or African countries being able to invite over fellow Africans to treat diseases that they would previously have to have done in other parts of the world. So it's it's exciting for me as someone who researches Africa and Russia-Africa relations and just where the continent is going, that we're looking at independence, self-sustainability, and a kind of group effort for African countries to support each other because it's a huge continent. So I think that there's there's a lot to expect from that. And there's a question that I ask um, all of my guests at the end of uh, the podcast, and I'd love to hear your opinion. The question is, what do you feel and think about when you think about the future of Africa? Laura, we have an African Union Agenda 2063, uh, which actually is a, a document or a policy that uh, talks about transforming Africa into the global powerhouse of the future. And that document has different aspirations. And one of the aspirations is achieving, you know, the Africa that we want, a prosperous Africa based on uh, sustainable growth and economic development. And that's exactly what I want to see Africa becoming. And yeah, that to me is my Africa in the next 10 to 20 to 50 years. Thank you for listening to the Africa Dialogues podcast. We look forward to more conversations about Africa today.